Hello and welcome to another episode of Pulsock Pod. In terms of uh, me and Eve, it's just me today as Eve is now back in Leeds for the summer, but we're going to see if we can work out whether we can do regular episodes uh, via Zoom, like the interview that I did with Carlos. But I am actually in the studio today and I'm joined by a guest host. He is a lecturer of politics at Northumbria. He hosts the Lives of the Left podcast and was actually my dissertation supervisor in the term just gone. Or sorry, the year just gone, should I say. So, Paul Simpson, it's great to have you in the studio with me today. Thanks for your invitation, Jack. Very nice to be here. Well, I feel like we needed to get a podcast going today because... Oh my God, what what has happened in these last two days? Have you ever seen anything like these last two days in British political history? I mean, it, it does seem pretty unprecedented. I think, um, you know, the obvious comparison would perhaps be to um, Margaret Thatcher in, in 1990, who, yeah. after having won uh, three general elections, was... Uh, forced out by um, cabinet resignations, etc. But um, she went after a handful of resignations, whereas uh, Boris Johnson has really uh, dug his heels in and uh, tried to uh, weather the storm. But uh, as you know, today he's finally gone. He tried to he tried to ride it out, really, and he's still trying to ride it out. Um, but he tried to ride ride out not resigning as Prime Minister, but unfortunately that has tremendously backfired, really. I've got it written in my notes, and I was saying before that I came on air that last night I um, I planned for this podcast, and at the time I'd wrote, written in my notes, over 30 ministers and parliamentary private secretaries had resigned. That number is now over 50, uh, which I've, I've done the maths, and obviously if we start with the resignations of Sajid Javid as health secretary and Rishi Sunak as chancellor on Wednesday evening at about, it was just gone six o'clock, uh, so that's less than 48 hours, so that is more than a minister, one minister per hour that has been resigning, which is uh, quite ridiculous when we think about it. Yeah, it seems that he's essentially got the stage now where um can't put together a, a functioning cabinet and, and therefore has had to, had to accept... Except defeat, and I also think as well. It seemed that um, it was clear that the 1922 committee were probably going to change their rules so that um, he would have to face another vote of confidence. And in in these circumstances, he would certainly lose it, or yeah. certainly lose it, um, having only fairly narrowly uh, won it. Uh, a month ago yeah definitely so we've got a lot in store for the podcast today i don't know how long it's going to be uh, so we'll just give a quick brief overview of the other news um of the week and the sort of last couple of weeks since we've not really been able to give that recently so um on monday unfortunately um seven people were killed in a fourth of july shooting in chicago um in one of our uh, last few episodes of Pulse Pod, I can't remember which one it was, so please forgive me. We discussed uh, gun control in the wake of another um, mass shooting in America, so we'll not go into that now, but obviously it's a very tragic event that's occurred in uh, Chicago, and our thoughts are with the victims. If you'd like to listen to our thoughts on that, you can go back to a couple of episodes and listen to that. Uh, in other news... Um, the chief executive of Lloyds Bank say most Lloyds Bank customers have less than £500 of savings in their bank accounts, which is obviously a harrowing thing to hear in the context of the cost of living crisis. However, on either it was either yesterday or Wednesday, and the national insurance threshold rose to £12,750 a year, which means that 2 million workers are now no longer paying a national insurance because in a year you have to earn that amount of money. Um However, the the pound is at an all-time low against the dollar. I'm not too sure on the stats to that. So it's it's definitely what's been going on in these last few days has been like, critical in the in the wider context of politics. And this is what we're going to get into. But finally, in sort of more positive news, really, um, we'd like to wish the best of luck to Cameron Norrie, uh, Great Britain's Cameron Norrie, I should say, who uh, faces Novak Djokovic tomorrow in the semi-finals of Wimbledon um, to play in the final. He He's been on a stellar run and I watched his game on Wednesday and he, he seemed down and out. Uh, so I'm definitely going to be tuning in for that and it should be a lot of fun. So let's get into what we're here to talk about today. Literally, so in fact, I should probably start by stating on record that these events are fast moving and I've got no idea what could happen next. By the time this podcast goes out, 
everything could have changed. So I will go on record and state now that the date is the Thursday, the 7th of July, 2022, and the time is 1.12pm in the afternoon. Uh, Paul and I are sat here with the BBC News up on my computer screen just to see if anything develops as this podcast goes on, and if it does we'll try and discuss it because basically all the notes we've got for this have been rendered useless by the second. I've never experienced anything like this in all my few years of studying politics or being sort of like uh, interested in politics. So let's get into what's been going on. So this afternoon, uh, Boris Johnson has announced that he will step down as leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister. This has come in the wake of the resignation of Tory MP Chris Pincher as Deputy Chief Whip after um, he was accused of groping two men. Uh, I believe that was last week, but in the context of that, historical accusations of sexual misconduct against Mr. Pitt Mr. Pincher, sorry, has emerged and uh, Boris Johnson has come under intense scrutiny for his handling. When he was appointed as Deputy Chief Whip in 2019, I believe, Boris Johnson apparently knew of these allegations and promoted him anyway but that came but that was Downing Street going back on their words after ministers had come out and said that he'd not known about that and it's later come out that according to Dominic Cummins uh Boris Johnson's form, former how what, what was his title director of communications Boris Johnson's former director director of communications uh, he described Mr Pincher as Pincher by name Pincher by nature and sadly this isn't even the latest government scandal this is probably the umpteenth government scandal since New Year's alone so it's crazy what's happened and what's happened since then has been even more crazy it started with the resignation as we say of Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak as Health Secretary and Chancellor respectfully and that has then snowballed into over 50 government governmental and ministerial resignations Nadim Zahawi was appointed as education not as education secretary sorry he was appointed as chancellor to replace Sunak and then uh, Michelle Donnellan was appointed education secretary as his replacement this very morning less than two days after being appointed Donnellan stood down from her post as education secretary and Zahawi uh, made publicly clear that he was not backing the Prime Minister to, co to continue, which is pretty crazy, uh, given that they've barely been in the post for 24 hours and they're already telling the Prime Minister to go. Last night, the Prime Minister held uh, meetings with uh, Simon Hart, who stood down. He was the Welsh Secretary. Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, although I don't believe he stood down, but he was he was imploring on the Prime Minister to go. Uh, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, who was stood down. And then it emerged that Zahawi was in there uh, imploring on the Prime Minister to go, and everyone sort of... like. <laughs> That, that was sort of the point where what's been going on crossed into farcical, I think. Would, wouldn't you agree, Paul? Yeah, I mean, the fact that some of these um, ministers have served uh, for something like 36 hours uh, in some of the main offices of state is completely ludicrous. Um, and as you said, I think Zahawi um, is a good example because, you know, in the last few days he was doing the rounds on TV defending uh, Boris Johnson and talking about going forward and delivering uh, the programme and all the rest of it. And then, you know, within well, less than two days, he's now joined the, those um, calling for Johnson to go. So, yeah, I think, as you say, pretty unprecedented. And then, of course, came the news where it sort of crossed into more Benny Hill territory last night that Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary, had been sacked, which was probably... <laughs> he was still able to create a storm in the midst of what of what was going on. I, I don't know how, in the context of over 50 ministerial regulation, uh, resignations, sorry, that someone has managed to get themselves sacked. And it's even funnier that it's Michael Gove, of all people. Like, what, what did you make of that when that when that emerged? Yeah, I mean, I, th I thought it was interesting. I mean, obviously, Johnson at that point, I guess, is still trying to assert some kind of authority. Um, I, did Johnson and Gove stand against each other for the leadership a couple of years ago? Or have I got that wrong? Um, in some 20, rivalry. In 20, there is, a, there is yeah. a rivalry between Gove and Johnson. In uh, 2016, when David Cameron was... Uh, 
resigning as Prime Minister. Boris Johnson intended to stand as for a Conservative leader and become Prime Minister then, uh, and he thought he had Michael Gove's back in, but then Gove turned around and put and entered himself into the race, uh, thereby stabbing Johnson in the back. Um, so he sort of he withdrew his candidacy, and then Michael Gove, I think, withdrew his as well. So it was all a little bit pointless. So even though they've worked together in quite a few cabinets, they've always there's always been a bit of this like rivalry between them. So for Johnson to sack Gove in the midst of the the biggest load of governmental turmoil for years was uh, so outlandish and outrageous really well not not out, I just mean outrageous in the context of everything it bordered on funny sort of thing and i was reading this morning um, from isabel oakshot who writes for the spectator she was saying that apparently gove walked into number 10 as part of these meetings that he was having with cabinet ministers uh, told boris to resign by nine o'clock <laughs> so boris sacked him at eight That that's probably the funniest part of it all is that they were i can just imagine them standing off in this office and just waiting for for anything to go happen and then Boris with a minute to go after being given this ultimatum has turned around to go and gone no you're out yeah it's pretty um, thick of it territory it is it really we are we are it's almost like Malcolm Tucker's back on our screens really like I I just it's leaving me lost for words really and I I must say that a lot on this podcast but it's because it's true like I've and it's like we were saying in the sort of intro is that commentators are saying that this we've not seen anything like this uh, in the UK government since the days of Thatcher and Thatcher's resignation in 1990 but obviously I wasn't around there and I don't I don't think you were I I don't want to assume no I I didn't I knew I knew you weren't that old but I did just want to check I was only only two at that point so so I I only remember a little bit I mean I was still I was still 11 years off coming into the world so obviously I don't really I can't remember anything I've only seen it portrayed in through like TV and movie. and I think The Iron Lady I don't know if you've ever seen that film they they portrayed it that sort of what happened quite well and that, that's how I know it anyway so obviously all these people coming on the news and telling us about how like it's sort of almost like an ode to the end of the Thatcher administration it's quite it's it's quite big really mm. because of how and I know that sounds obvious to say because of how uh, monumental Thatcher's downfall was yeah but um as I was saying before, um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it, it was only a handful of key ministers, I think, that uh, resigned um, and called for her to go, and that forced her out, whereas Johnson, as you say before, was his initial response was to try and ride out um, you know, tens of resignations. Um, so a totally different response uh, from him. Uh, yeah, and I mean, if you think about it, sort of like, even though the scale of the resignations was far bigger this time, it has still sort of panned out in the same way, is that, well, in a similar way, really, is that, um, oh, actually, we're just looking at BBC News now there, and it's focused on the Don Valley constituency, which is the one next to my home constituency. That is, Don Valley is currently home to uh, Nick Fletcher, who replaced Caroline Flint, actually. That's who, that's who the MPs are. And I mean, I've met Nick, uh, one of once or twice and yeah he's just he's sitting very much on the fence at the minute so i think he's sort of maybe hoping he might be able to get a he might be able to get a position in the cabinet i mean they're all up for grabs at the minute so you know you've got to kind of commend that attitude to like just just try and ride it out and see and see what happens really but i don't quite know where that is on the screen but anyway we'll get we'll get back to what we were saying so um i mean i think that it you know this is kind of important because um Obviously, you know, Johnson's achievement at the last election was to win in, in seats um, that were traditionally Labour. I think there were about uh, was it 52 or so seats switched from Labour to Conservative, and that basically delivered the yeah. majority. Um, and obviously, one of the big factors there was, was Brexit. Um, but it's interesting to see that a lot of the so-called Red Wall MPs have turned on Johnson as well. So I've just noticed today that, or was it last night, the um, the new Tory MP for Bishop Auckland, which is Deanna in Davison, County Durham, yeah. Yeah, she, she called on him to go. 
Um, she submitted a second letter, I think, of no confidence. She, she'd already oh, submitted right. a letter when okay. the actual no confidence vote came out, but then right. she submitted a second one okay. to basically be like, you know, what's take, what's taking you so long? Why can't we get these rules changed mm. sort of thing? And I think that is kind of key to understanding the reaction in the sense that um, I think a lot of this is about self-preservation and the polling now is pretty poor for... Um, for the Tories and Johnson in particular has quite poor polling. So if he's now seen as a, a liability electorally, um, I think that's why um, why the tables are starting to well, have turned on him. Yeah, and I mean, just sort of to play devil's advocate for a minute, you mentioned about self-preservation in terms of like these con- these these red wall MPs who came in in 2019 were so behind Boris as their leader and are now sort of turning on him in the droves. And obviously, you, you, you use the word self-preservation there. In a sense, is that not a good thing? Because, okay, yeah, they're trying to save their own jobs. But by doing so, they're also trying to, like, hold up, you know, the the views of what their, of what their constituents think, really, in terms of, like, they're trying to sort of echo the mood of their constituencies. And if you think about it, it's sort of like that's how backbench MPs should really they should they they should serve i mean all mps should serve their people really but in terms of obviously like front bench mps have a little bit more responsibility in terms of the governance of the country whereas back bench mps can focus more around their constituency is turning is turning on the prime minister as their leader and not sticking blindly by him is that not representative democracy in action yeah i mean i, I guess you could say that but um all i'd say is that the the comments in a lot of the uh, resignation letters regarding uh you know upholding values and integrity etc i think you have to be skeptical of that because i i don't think it would matter what boris johnson was doing if he was still an electoral asset yeah um i think these mps would be supporting him regardless of of um what uh, sort of scandals he was yeah. embroiling embroiling the and that's one in. of the things that i've written in my points to consider uh, for this podcast because like I say is that obviously this, these notes are quite volatile at the minute it's all changing but why why now why has it taken this when we've obviously seen the sort of the way the government handled Covid you know they blew 37 billion pounds on the test and trace system that didn't work you know Partygate came out at the end of last year uh, what else have we had we've had the breaking of the international law we had the um what else have we had there's been that many that i can't even think of off the top of my head um the northern ireland protocol i mean i suppose that comes up under international law but we we've just had all sorts all sorts of things that have gone on oh we had um uh, carries expenses in downing street i won't list them all but there's been that many sort of scandals that have happened at since covid came around so why now why have they just, why has this been the final straw when if they wanted to uphold that integrity and decency that they've talked about in their resignation letters or their letters to the 1922 committee why this and why not have just moved you know when the when the country was angrier earlier because now the country is just even angrier mm. yeah i mean I, th- I think it must be that some of them are really worried um about retaining their seats. Um, obviously, the recent by-election results, uh, Wakefield was one of those yeah. so-called red wall seats which went Tory at the last uh, election and has now gone back to Labour. And then, I can't remember the exact constituency, but they lost um, a seat that they had a fairly big majority in, in uh, to the Lib Dems. So it was maybe, at uh, Tiverton and Honiton yeah, in Devon, yeah. So in Devon, OK. So maybe there's a worry now for both the red wall type MPs, and of course one red wall MP defected to Labour, didn't he, a couple of months ago? Uh, yeah, I think that was Christian um, Wakeford, yeah. who is either Berry North or Berry South, I yeah. can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and, the, you know, those are quite marginal seats. So uh, if, the, if they're seen to be both losing uh, these sort of red wall seats and also losing in the so-called blue wall to the Lib Dems, then no one's really safe. And I think... Um, it does seem now that that 
if you look at his popularity ratings, are pretty poor now. Yeah. Whereas even a few months ago, um, he seemed to have ridden out most things, but seems to have got to that point. And as I said before, the Tory party are pretty ruthless in this regard. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher won 1979, she won 1983, she won in 1987, and then was removed in 1990 because the fear was she wasn't going to win the next election. They installed uh, John Major as the leader, and he then won in 1992. So um, as soon as the leader becomes problematic, um, the Tory party are traditionally pretty pretty ruthless. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, sort of, that, that actually brought us back to the to the end of the tangent that we sort of went off there brief, briefly. When I was saying about how, like, these sort of downfalls have been quite similar in a way, um, Margaret Thatcher had a uh, leadership election filed against her whereas Boris Johnson had a no confidence vote so they both faced these votes and they both won these votes but then have clearly realized that they don't have enough support to be able to carry on because I think it was I think it was Hessel Michael Heseltine who forced the uh, leadership contest in um, 1990 him and Thatcher faced off in the first round uh, Thatcher won but then obviously didn't realise she, she had enough support to be able to carry on. Uh, and so then came John Major into the race. Um, and then a little bit similarly, we've not had a... It's same but different, really, is that we've not had a leadership election this time. But it's been more... It's been a no-confidence vote when the Rebels moved uh, in early June. And I was down there in in London when that was when they were having holding those votes when the news came out it was it was quite brilliant and it was politics in motion and I did actually have a podcast planned to go along with that but unfortunately the facilities and obviously my work experience it was logistically it just was it was impossible unfortunately but you know they had they triggered the no confidence vote and the Boris Johnson survived and under the current rules of the 1922 committee there now can't be another no confidence vote for a year and obviously, with Boris Johnson going anyway, or is due to go, um, he wasn't safe, but it was, you know, he, he had that sort of notion from his own party in that he wanted to carry on, but it was to, I think he had less of a majority than Theresa May had when she faced her mm. confidence vote. Mm. Um, but the, on that note of the 1922 committee, uh, there are executive elections being held on Monday, I believe, which and all positions of the committee are up for grabs. And it's expected, and especially now in the light of what's been going on, that those rules will change, which means that the 12-month rule will probably be scrapped. And what's Boris has, what Boris has done here, sorry, is he's moved because his MPs essentially gave him an, an ultimatum and that he had no choice, really. Yeah, I think probably he's got to that point now where... Um, at least if he resigns, he, he kind of goes out on his own terms to some extent, whereas if they um, had a second no-confidence vote, he'd almost certainly lose it, and perhaps he'd want to avoid, or perhaps he understands that that's an inevitability at this point. And I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of didn't expect him to resign because of the way he was sort of talking in the last few days. I expected that he'd just end up go that he'd rather have lost a no confidence vote and gone out kicking and screaming than to have to face up to you know to have to f basically hand himself in and, f and face up to the consequences of it because I mean how many times in his political career has Boris Johnson actually faced up to reality this is probably mm. the first time is it not yeah, I mean, um, he still uh, had a good goal, though, didn't he? Of, yeah. Of, um, sort of avoiding the reality of the, the situation and arguably did sort of break precedent because previous leaders, you know, once they lose lose the support uh, of, of the key allies and key ministers usually, usually realise that time's up, they don't. I mean, because I was thinking actually, you know, just yesterday you were saying how, how things were, were were changing all the time and he, he did sort of, did look at one point that he would go for the nuclear option, which he kind of went for during Brexit where when 20 or so MPs voted against uh, the whip and he essentially withdrew the Tory whip from them and then they were essentially deselected by their... Um, by their local Tory associations and there was a possibility where he could have maybe tried to do that and withdrawn the whip from you know from these MPs who who turned on him but I think the difference is that 
one, um, the scale of that rebellion was around 20 or so, as I say, MPs, yeah. many of whom were, were backbenchers, whereas now, one, it's, it's more MPs, and also um, you're talking about you know ministers in, in government and... Secretaries of State, not not just backbenchers. So it was much, you know, it, that would have been pretty, pretty drastic thing to do. It sort of seeped into the cabinet this yeah, time round. Yeah. Really, is that what you're saying? And and you mentioned about sort of um, key allies, and we always assumed that you know Rishi Sunak, even though he was the Chancellor, not the Deputy Prime Minister, he was always seen as Boris Johnson's right hand man. And so when he resigned immediately after Sajid Javid it came as a bit of a bombshell because Sajid Javid is known to sort of walk away. He's not necessarily Boris Johnson's biggest ally. He resigned in early 2020 from the Chancellery, which was quite a, quite a shock, really. I didn't expect it. Um, and then that left Richard Shunak, who at that point was quite inexperienced in terms of that government positions, came in. And then he sort of, we all assumed he was the safest man in the cabinet, really. And then he turned around and handed it in. Handed in his notice. I mean, do you think that's because they're both on manoeuvres to stand uh, as the next leader? Potentially, and that was one thing that I was going to come into. But as well, what you got to remember, what I was going to ask is, do you reckon this was coordinated by them? Because you have to remember that when uh, Javid was Chancellor, uh, Sunak was a junior minister in the in the Treasury. Uh, I think one thing I do remember is they both went to go and see the new Star Wars film in late 2019 and they made a they made a sort of joke about like a you know a Jedi and Padawan sort of thing and they 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 had a really close working relationship in the in the treasury mm. so do you reckon this was a coordinated effort to try and like you know set the dominoes in motion really well as as you know Jack I don't really uh, know anything about popular culture, so I don't understand the <laughs> Star Wars reference, but I will uh, add that to my list of films to watch. Well, episodes f- uh, four, five, and six are on the poster that I gifted oh, you. Right, so. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'll make sure I um, watch those, and then I can retrospectively understand your your reference. Um, you know, I've I've honestly no idea about those, but I do think that this whole effort is is coordinated um you know they're all on whatsapp groups together and all the rest of it, aren't they and i mean some of them even co-signed resignation letters didn't they yeah. there was one that was yeah. signed by four uh, four, four or five four, people four, yeah. yeah so clearly that's there's a level of coordination where they've they think that it's the end of the road for for johnson and and they moved against him yeah, because, I mean, it was something in terms of the coordinated efforts, like we were just saying. Like, the sort of Star Wars that reference, it wasn't really anything, like, pop culture, as you say, but it was just, it just go to show, like, how close they were. And obviously, they both went off, sort of, like, on different paths. You know, uh, Sajid Javid went into the wilderness for a couple of years, but then came back, obviously, in the in light of what happened with Matt Hancock. So, obviously, then they were back in the cabinet, but this time in different in different offices, but so they but they still clearly must have stayed in good contact with each other because they literally resigned within minutes of each other. Mm. I was sat there watching Cameron Norrie at Wimbledon, as I said earlier, and the next thing, Javid resigned, and we're like, okay, that sort of come from nowhere. And then it flashes through minutes later that Sunak's gone, who we assumed up until that point only sort of really rivaled people like Pretty Patel and Dominic Raab as like the safest position in the cabinet. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know... Um it is quite ironic because a lot of these people are only there because of Boris Johnson. Um, I don't think any other leader would have promoted some of those people. A number of them don't really have any previous experience and not really um, been uh, MPs for a particularly long time and yeah. not really served in any previous cabinets. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think Sunak served um previously under name you know, neither do i um so a lot of them sort of are only there because they're allies of, of johnson so you know you can understand on that level why he probably feels pretty uh bad that they've, they've turned on him but uh my, obviously my sympathy is pretty limited <laughs> yeah oh yeah i know full well that and so on that note of limited sympathy obviously we're just going to stay on record now that you work on the lives of the left podcast you are a very uh, left wing in terms of your ideology, and you won't mind me saying that, I'm sure. So, and obviously you're from the north, you're from around the northeast as well. So this is one thing I wanted to discuss. How are the Durham Miners Gala going to react to this? Uh, okay, well, um, I obviously can't speak in any sort yeah. of official capacity to that. Although I did 
used to work uh, for the Miners Club a couple of years ago doing fundraising. Um, so I think the the Miners Club this year is, is quite interesting because um, I don't think um, either Starmer or Rayner will speak, although the Labour leader is always invited and basically um, uh, uh, Tony Blair broke the tradition of the Labour Party leaders speaking at the Miners' Which Carla. isn't really a surprise. Uh, yeah, and that was then revived to some extent by Ed Miliband, who spoke in 2012, I think it was. Um, and then, of course, Corbyn spoke uh, every year that he was the, the yeah. Labour Party leader. Um, but I think the fo- my understanding is that the focus this year is about key workers and the contribution that they made during the uh, the pandemic. So most of the speakers will be representatives from unions uh, like Unison Health yeah. uh, Workers um, Union, and I think there's one from the, the Postal Workers Union, and also um, Mick Lynch. I was literally just about yeah. to say, is Mick Lynch going to be Lynch there? The, speak the, as well. the UK's newest celebrity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so I mean that is I think that's quite interesting. I mean just just back on on Starmer. I mean I think it's I mean that's another unknown question at the moment because um, I mean I saw you know the exchange on Wednesday at PMQs yeah and it was very interesting. But I mean Starmer's position is is uncertain as well because if he is fined. Um, then both him and presumably both he and Rayner will have to go because they were both at this event in yeah. Durham. Um, so you could have a situation where neither of the mainstream parties actually has uh, a leader um, and they'll both presumably then have to have, well, we know the Tories definitely will have a leadership contest in, in autumn, but yeah. you know Labour might have to at a similar point. And I mean, that would be a catastrophic on goal, really, from Starmer's point of view, because given the chaos that the Tories are in... Uh, and and Labour and Labour heading yeah, some of the polls in, in as most well. of the polls, yeah. yeah, they're doing OK. Um, then, you know, for, for Starmer to have to leave in, at, at that position would, would be pretty... Pretty unprecedented. It as would well, be unprecedented, really. but he did make that promise that yeah. if he was if he was fined as a result of what of that event that he attended in, in Durham, Durham yeah. he would resign. So yeah. it would be, and that was sort of what I was going to say is that why hasn't you know why hasn't anyone thought about making a move in the Commons to try and force a vote of no confidence? But Keir Starmer said this morning that is that if Boris Johnson is going to stay until the autumn like he intends to. Labour will move that motion mm. of a parliamentary vote of no confidence into action, which is different from obviously an, in, an inter-party vote of no confidence because mm. that just removes him as leader. Yeah. Whereas if they actually have a vote of no confidence against the prime minister yeah. and no confidence uh, wins, that then forces the general election. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously if Keir Starmer is then ha- found to have to resign, what happens there? Who 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 gets elected? Like, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely up in the air because I, I think normally... You may, you know, you may have potentially the deputy leader would be in a good place to to then stand as, as leader. But obviously, um, given that both Starmer and Rayner are at the same event, there's a, there's a potential that actually Starmer and Rayner would have to go. Um, but I mean, Starmer did word his his promise pretty carefully insofar as he said that um, he would only go if he got fined, not if he got. Um, if they found there was a breach of the rules. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a possibility, isn't it, that maybe he gets, you know, he's breached the rules, but he can still stay on because he yeah. hasn't actually been issued with the the fine. Yeah, I think, I can't remember who it was. I was listening to Adrian Childs uh, earlier on uh, BBC Radio 5 Live, and I think Swan was sort of saying that uh, Keir Starmer is a little bit sort of like a Neil Kinnock figure in terms of Labour Party, is that people are sort of like dipping the toe in the water whether to back Labour, but they don't really like him as leader, particularly. Yeah, Whereas on the other yeah. hand, you seem to have people who are like quite staunchly supportive of a, of a Labour Party with Keir Starmer at the helm. Yeah, I think his personal polling rating isn't particularly good, is it? Um and I think, yeah, the Kinnock comparison's quite interesting because, I mean, Kinnock's kind of um, obsession really was to um, limit the, the power and influence of the left within the Labour Party um, after he became leader. 
and Kinnick was pretty unsuccessful. He lost in 87 and lost in 1992, and particularly in 1992, really, they should have... Because he was he was on course to and win. Yeah, and I don't, as you say, I don't think he had particularly favourable... Um, uh, pers- uh, you know, opinion ratings, um, but I mean, it'd be very interesting because, and I think I just thought it was interesting because usually Starmer would be in a much stronger position, um, and he did. I think you know his performance on on Wednesday in PMQs was was okay, and there was some decent. Um, he did have some decent lines, but he would be in a much stronger position if he knew that you know the. Uh, you know, he didn't have this looming over his head where he can basically be removed at any point yeah. uh, in the next week or so. And I obviously don't want to switch the subject of this onto the sort of internal problems that Labour are facing now, but I feel like in terms of a general election, we have to sort of discuss it a little bit. Obviously, in the media, sometimes Starmer has been portrayed to be not only boring as a, pers- as a personality, but he's scored quite a few own goals on occasions in terms of the politics. So, and obviously you have the sort of the, the old Corbynites in the party has been sort of going on the offensive against them and they're sort of going on the offensive against him. So how the hell, if there is a general election and Labour's best chance to get back into government, how the hell do they become united? Uh, d- to be honest, I think um, the the left in the party is, is usually pretty loyal. So, I mean, you know, people like Corbyn, McDonald, Diane Abbott, etc., were all MPs under under Blair and obviously yeah. um campaigned in general elections in, you know, nineteen ninety seven, two thousand one. Obviously quite obviously quite rebellious within Parliament rebellious in terms of things, Parliament, like, but, yeah, things like the Iraq but war and yeah, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So rebellious perhaps on on particular votes and policies. But in terms of when it comes to a general election, um would would campaign and and obviously they've got a self interest to some extent in that because you know that they'll want to be re-elected, um, so I think you would you would see, uh, I think if a general election was called you'd probably see, um, a, a bit of unity, um, I mean I think the other key question and obviously it's something that Johnson ruled out. Um, when he uh, just this week, one of his last actually was to rule out the another referendum on Scottish independence. Yes, um, and obviously that potentially is opened up again um, if Labour rely on the SNP for um, to form the next government. I, I don't think they would do a formal coalition, but they may do a kind of uh, a supply agreement, um, and perhaps as part of that they may say, "Well, we won't." reject um, another referendum. I mean, that's very speculative, but it's, it's possible. And that's even more interesting when you consider uh, Anna Sarwar, obviously the, the Scottish Labour leader, he's proposing an alternative to independence within the sort of Scottish Parliament and mm. things like that. So it's all up in the air, really, when you think about it. Like, sort of anything's on the table yeah. in terms of if a general election does come around. So maybe that's why perhaps Labour are being cautious to move this parliamentary vote of no confidence because it's not that they don't have a plan if for what sort of happens next it's how could this come back to basically bite us on the arse really I think as well the other issue here is that if the Tories get a new leader in and that's someone who's not toxic to you know doesn't have the poor approval ratings and also um, the Tories seem very good in the last uh, particularly Johnson and even Theresa May to some extent when they get a new leader they sort of present themselves as uh, something new um, despite the fact that they've served under the previous administrations and been in power since 2010 but you know that it's possible that um, a new Tory leader results in a, 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 you know a bit of a surge of support for the Tories again you know if they can sort of move on from from Boris Johnson um, it may actually you know, this may not actually result in in anything positive for the Labour Party because actually to have Johnson there and and just sort of stumbling on indefinitely made them look incredibly weak and Johnson was becoming more and more unpopular, um, whereas a new leader might actually... um, might actually boost the Tories' poll ratings, possibly. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we saw... Well, recently we've sort of gone gone back to the norm, whereas when by elections happen between general elections, mm. the or the opposition parties normally win. But twenty twenty one was a rare case where um, 
the, the Conservatives stormed local elections and then they, they stormed the Hartlepool by-election as well and they took another sort of red wall seat mm. off Labour. So really, for, for all his faults, Boris Johnson has always been quite a good like man of the people, if you like. Not necessarily with the policies that he provides, but with the campaigning efforts. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, his um, victory in, in 2019 was, was pretty impressive to win those seats that had... Always, I certainly uh, didn't expect labor. it to be that bad. No, big of a I, I didn't either. I thought, I mean, I thought they would get majority, and I thought, you know, Labour's commitment to a second referendum was particularly catastrophic. Yeah. Um, given the number of leave voting seats Labour held, and given how many of those seats were basically marginal seats, but they actually won seats that were relatively safe as well. So, for example, Northwest Durham, I didn't expect that to go um, to the Tories. I didn't expect Blythe to go to the Tories. I didn't expect uh, Bolsover to go. So there were seats there that had sort of 10,000 majorities after 20, two, uh, 2017 that, that went to the Tories. So, I mean, it was yeah. pr- uh, pretty, uh, pretty impressive turnaround. And I think that's what Johnson argued to his party that look only I could deliver that um, but clearly the the kind of sheen has, has come off him now he's no longer an electoral asset and they've, they've turned on him despite him arguably helping deliver that yeah. um, that uh, 80 seat majority but I mean I think it'll be interesting now as to what happens with the toy party in the sense that with Johnson coming in he kind of brought with him um, uh, these kind of levers um, the, the party, you know, some fairly new people quite far on the right of the Tory party. It'll be interesting to see what happens next, whether they sort of go back to the more kind of um, centre-right uh, politicians and, and all the rest of it, or, or, or whether these people who have, who have sort of benefited from Johnson, like... Sunak, etc. Where that whether they'll become the next leadership? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's really what I was going to ask you next. Actually, sort of more in the more in the here and now. Who are some of the names that are going are going to run for this? Because I mean, I've got to be honest. I don't. Know, I couldn't say now definitively who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Mm. Um, so obviously, I think Javid's and Sunak's resignations confirm that they're in for it. Uh, was it Suella, Suella Braverman? Braverman. She, she threw yeah. her hat in last late last night on Peston. Yeah. And then you've got other names to think about. You've got the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. You've got Home Secretary Priti Patel. Uh, you've mm. got Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. Um, and then obviously there's a couple of more like outside the names. Like obviously Nadim Zahawi doesn't really have a lot of ministerial experience. I think he's only had vaccines, education and now Chancellor. Uh, he could throw into that into the ring, and then there's also people like Penny Mordaunt, the touting as the next leader. So it's it's really coming from all ends of of the Conservative Party. Really, these these potential challengers. Mm. It's not necessarily. It's going to be a sort of like I don't know what the right word is. It's going to be different from our, from leadership election before, whereas because before you've had like these established names in the party, you've thrown the hat forward. Whereas now is that even though you have these names that are recognisable, oh, I think there's a bit of an issue there with the sound. I saw that. Sorry, when you have these names that are rec- recognisable within sort of polit- politics, but I bet if I went and asked my non-politico friends, do you know who Penny Mordaunt is? With all due respect to Penny Mordaunt, they won't have a clue who she is. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that is interesting. I think the way the Tory Party uh, works for leadership, I think the Parliamentary Party nominates and and votes for for in the leadership and that goes to two candidates which i think is then put to the membership um and then that would be announced at the the party conference i think that's yeah. how it works um so you might have some people who aren't necessarily don't re- don't have much name recognition or, or experience but they may be popular with the tory grassroots which in yeah. the end could could be what, I think, what gets them there. I think on that note, you ha- we had Rory Stewart do that in 2019. I mean, you have to forgive me if, in case he did serve in the cabinet, but I don't. I can never remember like recalling his name mm-hmm. um, before he's done that election, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure he got quite far. And it was because he was sort of like he was like the quite the liberal option compared to like where everyone else was going in the. But although I say that. We've always been under scrutiny about where Boris Johnson actually stands in terms of ideology, but in terms of the liberal, he was more 
Laura Stewart was more liberal in that moment when all of the candidates were sort of like going on about, you know, Brexit needs to be done sort of thing. Whereas he was taking a more a more liberal approach is that, no, we need to sort of open these conversations again and potentially we need to sort of like be into discussion about another referendum. Mm. And, he, and he did actually get quite far. Yeah, I mean, I think it will be interesting to see who, who takes over in terms of whether it means a new direction because... I mean, Johnson has done something quite interesting because while they've still pursued um, austerity across the board, they have committed to some kind of um, kind of targeted spending and some level of uh, state intervention. And you know, for example, the fact that they have this levelling up minister—it's a recognition that um, there's a problem in the country in terms of the north-south divide. Um, so, so kind of interestingly. I don't even know. I mean, Johnson is a Thatcherite in some ways, but in other ways, uh, he kind of isn't. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, afterwards, whether there will be a kind of new um, direction of policy um, or whether it'll just continue kind of as it is with these targeted spending, which which is all partly cynical because it's about maintaining Tory support in, yeah. in these newly won seats. But... I guess that will be interesting. I think um, his his the policies that he's pursued are, are slightly distinct from from Theresa May before then. And you know, um, and as as you say, I'm not really sure about the ideological um, uh, views of some of these uh, potential candidates. Yeah, neither am I really. And it's like you say it's that there could be a lot of names being thrown into the ring, mm. but it, it's probably likely that it will get whittled down to... To two, I think. Yeah, it always gets whittled down to two, but in terms of, like, more generally, yeah, it'll yeah, probably get whittled yeah. down to the more popular yes, names in the cabinet right, anyway. Yeah. But you never know. We, there could be a backbench who's never served before who could go on quite a blistering run, really. It'd be, it would be a little bit like uh, the FA Cup in the 1970s when Hereford United knocked Newcastle out. Yeah. Say, I don't know. Um, I'll give a name. Nick Fletcher, for example, the, the backbench MP for Don Valley. He could go down to the top four and in the process remove people people like Zawi, Gove and uh, Braverman sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is It is uh, a bit of an unknown at this point. But I think what I would say, though, is that one of the problems is that none of them, to my mind, will have any real um, plan to deal with the cost of living crisis. You've got a situation now where inflation's hitting 10%, which is, which, you know, we haven't seen for decades. And um, none of them really seem to know how to grapple with that. Um, I don't think there's going to be... Um, well, uh, I, th- I think there'll be substantial amount of um, industrial action, strike action, particularly in the public sector. Yeah. Because um, if, if inflation rises and pay doesn't rise in line with that, that's a real terms pay cut, which is going to affect mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, and, and students as well. I mean... Presumably the maintenance loans will stay the same at the same level of, what, four or five grand a year. But actually, in reality, that that isn't going to get you as much as the it used to because of the more. cost of living. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if they've got any plans for um, raising the, the, the maintenance loans to, to ensure students can can continue to you know participate in society. Um, and I don't, I don't think any of them have any real real plan for that and the, the, a lot often they're sort of blaming the uh, international situation which does have you know just have some part to play but um it's also their, their policies which are, uh, are keeping down wages yeah it can't the the whole situation in ukraine can't be used like it is as a constant deflection of scrutiny which is what mm. i seem to find yeah, um, yeah. and it, but it's like what you were saying i was talking to my dad this morning who was probably the person who like got me into politics really and sent me down that road and he was saying that the country is basically you know on its knees in all sectors like you can't get a flight inflation's through the roof we have the trains on strike the other week mm. the petrol costs are going up and up and you were just saying that people have got how was it? How uh, le- Lloyd's according to the chief executive of Lloyd's, uh, they were set. Th- he was saying that Lloyd's customers, most of them, seem to have less than five hundred pounds of savings in yeah. the bank. Yeah, and I saw I saw the other day as well that there's serious problems with um, the the benefit system as well, yeah. where 
people applying for uh, disability benefits are having to wait up to five months for their first payment. You know, these are all some big issues. And I thought it was interesting, actually, that um, Martin Lewis was being interviewed last night. And obviously he's sort of transformed a bit from someone who, you know, offers kind of consumer advice into someone who's sort of really trying to sound the alarm about the cost of living crisis. And he was saying, you know, that what's happening in in Parliament, to a large extent, is a bit of a sideshow in the sense that some of the real issues are that people, you know, many millions of people are going to be unable to afford uh, the basics to, you know, heat the, the houses, um, put food on the table, etc. And really, we need uh, a government that, that focuses on that and, yeah. and tries to actually put forward serious policies to alleviate that because often... The, the policies that are put forward in recent times are, are pretty insufficient. You know, yeah. 150 quid, you know, rebate on council tax. Okay, it's, it's something, but it's not uh, adequate given the scale of the of the issues. And it's the same. I was thinking about this when they obviously they announced the increase in the national insurance threshold. The problem with that is is that the, the national insurance in general went up in April. I'm pretty sure the levels of taxes. So it's like they're saying they're bringing forward these. Um, these solutions to the cost of living crisis when actually this cost of living crisis could have been so easily avoided but it was instigated by this government really and although we've been sat here sort of having a bit of a joke about what's been going on in the last few days when you sort of scratch beneath the surface of what's been going on there is actually a very very serious cost of living crisis going on which has serious repercussions you know for the everyday person and as funny as this is to sort of watch along and see basically you know comical like thick of its dial things occur at the end of the day, it is, it is quite a serious top matter, really. Mm. So maybe some... St- well, I say maybe, there's no maybe about it. Stability is needed in order to bring about solutions that can be you know, implemented swiftly and correctly to be able to alleviate this crisis. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and whether that's... Uh, I mean, my preference would be a, a change of government at, at a, in a general election... But, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously can't continue in this kind of state of paralysis because um, none of these issues will be addressed if you don't even have a functioning, uh, you know, cabinet and, and uh, um, leadership uh, in the country. And, I mean, it makes me think of when, obviously, Boris Johnson called the election 2019 to break the parliamentary deadlock. We thought the government was deadlocked there. Now, at the minute, we don't really have a government, to be honest. We have that many pre- private secretaries and ministers that have gone, OK, they've been re- they've been replaced this morning, but who knows how long they're going to last if this no-confidence motion gets channelled and we do go to a general election. Like, we, we thought the government was deadlocked then, and it's like, oh, no, you ain't seen nothing yet type thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what the, the current situation is, right, because... If, yeah, if, if Boris Johnson resigns um, but stays on as a leader, there's a possibility that some of those people who have resigned will come back just to serve in a temporary position until uh, he's then replaced by a new leader. But, I mean, that would be pretty farcical that people who have said literally today and yesterday that, um, you know, Boris isn't, Boris Johnson isn't fit to be Prime Minister would then serve in an administration that he he's still technically led for, for the next few months. Um, but it may be it may be that, you know, he he um, has to go uh, he, that he can't even serve as a temporary, you know, as a, a temporary yeah. a temporary situation. I mean, if you ask me from my personal perspective, mm. I feel as though uh, a transitional period is needed but not with Boris Johnson in charge. I feel like a temporary, you know, prime minister should be installed. Although there technically isn't a, there isn't. It's not like with the USA. We don't have a constitutional motion for temporary prime ministers. We can put someone in charge who will be, you know, prime minister officially, but as an acting prime minister uh, unofficially, um, really. And I feel like that will be needed. But of course, when the new prime minister comes in. Uh, Labour and the opposition will be saying that you know you've got no you've got no popular mandate. We need a general election, and I feel as though a general election at this at this very moment, like the you know, confidence motion, would just add sort of more chaos into the mix. Especially as we were saying earlier about Starmer's fine. So like we don't really know we don't really know who the two candidates would be in a sort of in a TV debate really. So I feel like we need this sort of transitional period, but 
for Boris Johnson to be at the helm would be, in my opinion, totally stupid. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah, it's a possibility, isn't it? It's probably the, the 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 likely outcome that, as you say, there'll be some kind of interim prime minister, maybe Rab or, or someone like that. But I mean, yeah, you're, and you're also right that I mean, obviously Starmer's was pushing for a, a general election, but um, he doesn't even know whether he can be the candidate. At that, yeah. uh, at that next, uh, as for leader, that next election. So I mean, it's it's very uncertain for for both parties, really. Okay, so we're seeing there that Greg Clark has been named the new Levelling Up Secretary, cleverly appointed education, and Robert Buckland returns to cabinet as Wales Secretary. Okay, so they've filled some of the posts. Um, I've never, well, I've heard of two of the three. Robert Buckland, I think, was in the just was the Justice Secretary. Right. Um, James cleverly sort of like been in and around cabinet for years now. I think he was chairman of the Conservative Party yeah. at one point. He was working the uh, the Foreign Office. Um, so these these names to me are recognisable because I've sort of been more in the loop of the Conservative Party in the last few years. Um, but you know he's filling the positions, and he was saying sort of like in the speech, he was saying that he wanted to carry on as Prime Minister, um, not just like temporarily, but in in general, like he didn't want to resign. But in his own words them's the breaks like his party have heaved pressure on him and rightly so in the last few days we've seen an unprecedented amount of resignations from the government uh yeah it's just saying here in fact in the last few days i've tried to persuade my colleagues that it, it would be eccentric to change government when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we are actually only a handful of pro points behind points behind in the polls you know he's saying that he this is what he wants to do but in his own words them's the breaks he now feels this is the time when he has to move aside really is that what he actually said them's the breaks them's the breaks hardly Churchillian is it and exactly it's it's more it's not necessarily the Churchillian spirit that he's you know tried to embolden like the last few years really yeah I think um, maybe when he uh, resigns he can go back to writing his uh, <laughs> his uh, biography and our brilliant Darwinian system will produce another Leader, yeah, that's that's probably more towards the Churchillian <laughs> rhetoric than them's the breaks. But I think that's probably a good place to sort of uh, wrap it up. Really, we thought we'd make this one a bit of a bumper episode because by the time this goes out, all could change really. And um, I've got like you know a busy week coming up. I'm graduating uh, on Wednesday, the thirteenth of July, I believe the date is. So you know I'm not going to be around to be able to do this podcast for a while so we're gonna we're gonna sort of like maybe take a week off so we thought we'd make this one a bumper episode to try and discuss all possibilities for what's about to happen because i mean i don't know what's going to happen you don't know what's going to happen so i don't know who who the hell does know what's going to happen but it's going to be it's going to be bumpy really paul i just want to say thanks to you for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure having you and i really hope you've enjoyed the podcast just before we go i've got a couple of things to say actually i've realized that i didn't do this the um the iceberg question that we give to all guests on the podcast i know you're not technically here to be interviewed today but you're still a guest on the podcast so i thought i'd ask the question so the iceberg question that we give to all guests just to sort of like break the ice is do you think there's more wheels in the world or doors (laughs) um do I have to explain why as well? You can give an explanation uh, if you want uh, to, but that... if you don't have an explanation, you don't have to. <sighs> Do you, is there a right answer to this? Someone has done the maths, I believe, mm. but I think it's more of a it's more of a debate than a you know uh, than a stat really. I'm gonna say doors. You're gonna say doors. That's actually quite because I think that's the um, I think that's the first person who is it doors or is it yeah I think. I think you might be the first person to have said doors, uh, including me. And I think, do you know, I don't even know. I'm pretty sure I'm wheels and you'll be able to hear that on the podcast. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you're the first person to say doors. So, well, I'll, I'll have to Google it when we finish <laughs> and find out. It's quite a good question. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, I just want to say thanks again for coming on the podcast so just before i go i'll um finish off with a couple of announcements really don't forget you can follow us on instagram at northumbria politics society uh twitter at pulsock pod and the last thing really that i want to say is that from the 50th from the 5th of july sorry to the 15th of august there's a public vote uh underway for the to, to find this 
the town or city that's going to that's going to become host to the Great British Rail uh, National Headquarters, and my city Doncaster is one of the candidates in the shortlist. So I would urge you all, even though this is a Newcastle centric pod, I would urge you all to go to gbrtt.co.uk slash. Uh, vote i believe and uh, register yourself and vote for doncaster i mean you can choose the other candidates on the list if you want to but i personally am endorsing my home city uh, and i think it's the best candidates but we've not really got time to get into the explanation why so i just want to say thanks again for tuning into this bumper episode of pulse pod the time is now uh, eight minutes past two on the 7th of July 2022 so when you listen to this I've got no idea what's gone on but you know I hope it's I hope it's sort of lived up to the hype really so thanks again for listening and we will see you in the next episode <laughs>